Uh, we are ending our series called Transformed, and uh, I'm just excited about that, for what Paul has to say to us today. But before we dive into that, I think it's most appropriate for us just to stop here for just a few moments and to pray. In light of everything that's uh, happened here in our country over the past several days, will you join me in prayer? Dear Father, we come to you and we humbly ask you to heal our nation. In the face of all the confusion, the lack of trust of, of one another, it seems, Lord, we need your help. We need your help. And so, Lord, we pray for those who have lost a family member this past week, for the pain that they're going through, the misunderstandings, the confusion, the anger. God, we pray that you, the God of all peace, would be peace to them during this time. We ask, God, that you would work miracle upon miracle, that you would do what only you can do, and that you would transform, that you would heal, Lord, that... uh, You would help in ways that we can't even possibly uh, imagine right now or know what to say. It's uh, it's mind-blowing. And so, God, we we pray that you would move in our nation. We also pray that you would help us as a nation to get more focused on you. The the more that we place you at the center, the better off we're going to be. And so, God, forgive us, help us, heal us, we pray. And use us as well. Lord, we are here to be your agents of grace to those around us. So, Lord, may it start right here where we're at. Lord, that we would represent you, Jesus Christ, to be your hands and feet wherever we go. That we would think the best of other people. That we treat people with honor and dignity, love and grace. That all across this nation, that we, your followers, known as Christians, would represent you beautifully. Because our country desperately needs to see your love, to see your grace, to see your truth, to see your mercy. So use us, we pray. Lord, we thank you for what you are going to do in the days to come, even in the midst of our confusion. Lord, help us as a nation to be humble before you, to seek your face, and to trust you. We thank you that you are God. We thank you, Lord, that you love us, despite who we are. We're amazed by that. So, Lord, we thank you in your name. Amen. Well, in the midst of all the imperfection that's gone on uh, this past week here in our country, I want to ask you to think about perfection, if you would. I want you to think about your life. I want you to think about what your perfect day would look like. You know, the kind of day where everything goes your way. Your every single need is met, and you find complete contentment. Can you see it? Can you see what that day would look like for you? Well, I don't know what your day would look like, but my perfect day would consist of either enjoying a sunny day at the beach or enjoying a sunny day skiing down a mountainside. I mean, I can think of nothing better. That would be a perfect day for me. And even as I say that, some of you are thinking, okay, Phil, I get that. But as beautiful as Cincinnati is, and it's beautiful, we love it here, uh, you live in Cincinnati, Phil. And the likelihood of you experiencing a sunny day at the beach here in Cincinnati is somewhat unlikely. And for you to experience a day skiing down a mountainside in Cincinnati, it isn't going to happen. In fact, I would have to agree with you if you're thinking that. I've had some people come up to me. I haven't been to this place, but they've told me that they have been there. 
And they say there's this place called Perfect North. And they say, you know what, if you ski down a mountainside before and you go there, it's not going to be perfect. It's going to be far from perfect. In fact, they tell me if I actually go and ski at Perfect North, basically it's all downhill from there. That's what they tell me. So uh, the reality is my perfect day isn't likely to happen day in and day out. And perhaps as you think about your perfect day, it's probably not going to happen either. And so what do we do? What do we do in this life that we live if we want to embrace true, full contentment? What do we do when we see that it's kind of elusive for us? I think if we're wise, we look to someone who has learned the secret of contentment. To be content no matter what they face. If we're wise, we'll stop for a few moments and learn from the Apostle Paul. Let's listen. You might be asking why I'm in prison and why these chains. Let me explain. Upon my return to Jerusalem, after my third missionary journey, I met with the elders of the Jerusalem church. I reported to them all the great things God had accomplished among the Gentiles through my ministry, for which they praised God. But they went on to tell me that the Jewish Christians there had been told that I was teaching all the Jews living in the Gentile world to turn their backs on the laws of Moses, to not circumcise their children, or to follow other Jewish customs. So it was suggested that to do away with these rumors and also to demonstrate that I do observe the Jewish laws, that I go through a purification ritual in the temple, which I did. A week later, some Jews from the province of Asia saw me in the temple and roused a mob against me. They said I was teaching people to disobey the Jewish laws and that I had spoken against the temple and even defiled the temple by bringing Gentiles into it. Now, true, I had been seen with a Gentile earlier that day, and so it was assumed that I had taken him into the temple. Well, to say the least, the whole city was in an uproar, and I would have been killed had it not been for the intervention of some Roman soldiers who took me to their fortress and held me in custody there. Because there was a plot by over 40 men who took a vow to kill me, I was taken to Caesarea, which is the Roman headquarters for that region. 470 soldiers accompanied me, and there I was held in prison. There was no evidence to prove any of the charges against me. Yet I was interrogated and interviewed multiple times by some very important officials. Of course, I took the opportunity to boldly proclaim Christ. But after two long years with no trial, I finally drew the conclusion that justice delayed is justice denied. So I appealed to Caesar, which then meant I must be delivered to Rome. It would be a long and risky voyage. You see, it was late fall, a time in which sailing would be extremely dangerous. So when we did set sail, we encountered headwinds that made it difficult 
to keep the ship on course. So we landed the ship at Myra in the province of Lycia. There, we were transferred to another ship. And after several days of rough sailing, we struggled along the coast with great difficulty and arrived at Fair Havens. I warned the ship's officers that trouble was ahead if we were to go on. Shipwreck, loss of cargo, injuries, and even danger to our own lives. I urged them to winter at Fair Havens. Of course, they didn't listen. Soon we pulled up anchor and we sailed along the, the shore very closely. But the weather changed abruptly and a wind of typhoon strength caught the ship and blew us out to sea. Well, they couldn't turn the ship into the wind, so they let the ship go wherever the wind would carry us. We banded the ship about with ropes to strengthen the hull. And as the wind continued to batter the ship, the crew began to throw overboard cargo and any equipment that wasn't needed. I thought it would never end. Day after day, night after night, no sun, no stars by which to navigate. Just raging winds and billowing seas. Finally, I called the crew together and I told them that they should have listened to me. And then I went on to encourage them that my God had promised me that no one would lose their life, but that we would be shipwrecked on an island. After 14 miserable nights at sea, we finally approached the island of Malta. The ship hit a shoal and ran aground and broke apart, and as it broke apart, we were jumping overboard, and we were grabbing onto planks and any other debris from the broken-up ship, anything really that would float. And amazingly, everyone escaped safely ashore. Three months passed before we boarded another ship and finally arrived at Rome. No more sailing for a while. I'm here in prison in my own rented house. I've been afforded many privileges because I've found such favor among so many of the Roman guards. I've been able to freely share the truths of Jesus Christ with so many, and some have believed. You know, even in Caesar's own household, some have become Christians. I'm free to receive visitors in and out. I'm free to continue to write my letters to the churches. I hope to be released soon. But even with the freedoms I enjoy, I'm still a prisoner. But I am not ashamed. I wear these chains for my Lord. As you can see, for for Paul, 
You know, his perfect day, he really didn't experience it. In fact, day in and day out, his days were far from perfect. And yet he writes this letter, this incredible letter to the Philippians. And we're closing that letter out today. He, we, we get now to the end of the letter, which is interesting because it's now that he brings up the very matter that caused him to write this letter to begin with. You see, this letter to the church in Philippi was actually a thank you letter, a thank you note, if you will, because of this generous financial gift that the church in Philippi had sent to him. See, the church in Philippi, they lived in poverty. And even though that was the case, they gave out of their poverty to Paul. And this financial gift was delivered to Paul by a man by the name of Epaphroditus, if you remember me mentioning him a couple weeks ago. And so now Paul, as he closes out his letter, begins to thank them. And the way that he thanks them is, is not the way that you would expect. In fact, here's what he writes in verse 11 of chapter 4. He's saying, I'm not saying this because I am in need. Or basically he's saying, you know what, I'm not thanking you right now because I am in need. And if we take a look at that statement, we have to ask, okay, really? I mean, Paul, your entire situation from our vantage point is defined by need. As we just heard, he's chained to a Roman guard. He, he's living on a limited food supply. He can't see his family. He really can't see his friends. And yet Paul says that he's not thanking them because of his need. He's saying, I don't have any needs. And how is that possible for him to write this? Well, he answers it for us. He says, for... I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Paul writes here about contentment, of what it means for you and I to be content. So how do we define that word in our culture today? Well, in a nutshell, we would say, well, somebody who's content is satisfied with what they have. They don't have a need for anything more. In fact, they don't even think about getting anything more because what they have is more than good enough. That's contentment. You know anyone like that? Because here in America, it seems like we always have to have something more, don't we? Well, that's how we define contentment. But back then in the first century, they actually defined it differently. Listen, here's the difference. They would define it this way. To be self-sufficient or independent. You see, in the first century world that Paul was living in, to be content meant that you didn't need help from anyone else. You were independent. And Paul is saying, you know what, let's be honest here. He's calling a spade a spade. He's saying, you know what, if we're honest, we all need the right kind of help from the right kind of people. And so Paul teaches us this first lesson. He's saying a focus on Christ produces a contented life. A focus on Christ produces a contented life. And so he's taking that, that day's definition of contentment and he's morphing it just a bit. He's saying, you want to be independent? Okay. Here's what contentment means for the Christian. It means to be, depend, it means to be independent of everything else but the all-sufficient Christ. You don't need anything else but him. And that's why Paul says he didn't have any needs. Because he has everything he needs in Christ, everything else that you can possibly imagine, he places merely in the want category. But is that what we do? Because, friends, if we're honest, what we tend to do is many things that should be in the want category for us, we place in the need category. 
We just got to have these things. And I think one reason why that's true for us is because we live in a world that has so many different options. And because of all the options in front of us, it just seems like a few of those have to be ours, right? I mean, think about it. We, we have endless restaurant options. We have endless TV channel options. We have endless exercise options. We've got endless entertainment options and investment options. Endless educational options. Options are all around us. And even though we have all of these options as Americans, most Americans are bored and they're downright frustrated. And how could this be? One theologian answers the question. He says it this way. He says, restless is our heart. Until it rests in thee. Restless is our heart until it rests in thee. Most of us, many of us, we're restless. Because we want just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Perhaps this is why Paul stated he had learned the secret to be content. The secret. Something that he knew that no one else knew. But the reality is, The secret, perhaps, here is why the NIV commentators place the word secret in this text. Because the Greek word that lies behind this is used only here in the New Testament. And it literally means to be initiated. What Paul's really saying is that he had been initiated into contentment. And, of course, anytime you're initiated into anything, it generally means that you have to step through some hoops you don't really want to go through in order to get there. I mean, think about college, for example. If you wanted to be part of a fraternity, it meant that, of course, you had to go through a whole bunch of pain, a whole bunch of embarrassment, perhaps for a week or two, before you can gain membership. And Paul was initiated as well into contentment. And what was his initiation process like? Well, he told us in verse 12. Take a look again. He says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And so he was initiated into contentment through his need, through his hunger, and through the things that he wanted that he really kind of needed. He went through a whole bunch in order to be initiated into contentment. And yet, by being stripped of what many of us would find to be essential Through this process, Paul discovered what is truly essential. I love how Mother Teresa stated it. She said, you'll never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you've got. You ever been there? Where is Jesus for you? Because I think for many of us, and we look at life, we look at life, life a bit differently than Paul talks about. In fact, I think uh, we kind of easily embrace what I would call the restaurant of life mentality. The restaurant of life. You been there? You know what I'm talking about? Because here in the restaurant of life, we got to look at our lives this way. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that this salad right here, this is you. This is your life. You are unique, special. No one else like you. You're a treasure in God's eyes. This is you. This is your life. But if we're going to be honest, lettuce all by itself, it's kind of incomplete, isn't it? It's kind of boring, tasteless, really. There's got to be more to your life than just this. And so we tend to, you know, bring other things into our life in order to make us who we are. For example, we want to add cherry tomatoes to our life. These represent your friends that you have in your life. You know, your couple friends, maybe from high school, 
and some friends from college, some friends that you met at work, those are part of your life. Friends that are on your street, you've gotten to know your neighbors as well, you know. Of course, these are all your Facebook friends right there. You know, you put those and those are part of your life as well. you got all these friends. This helps to make your life your life. It makes it more interesting, right? This is you. But on top of, you know, your, your friends, you, you got family too. That makes up your life too, right? So you have your, your mother and your father. These represent all the different People in your family, we all have many people in our families. Your, your cousins, your aunts, your uncles, you know, your, your grandparents, you got those. Then, of course, that's just part of your family. Then, of course, you have your in-laws, they make up your life. And then your outlaws, they make up part of your life as well. You know, the people you don't want to see your family reunion, uh, they're all part of your life. And that makes you you. But that's not quite enough because... You've got to have your pursuits as well, your goals, right? That's what we do. That makes us us. And so you have the goal and a pursuit of graduating from high school. And then you graduate college, right? And then once you graduate, you get your first job. And because you're an American, two weeks after you get your first job, you get your first new car, right? And then maybe a couple years pass, maybe. And then, of course, you've got to get married. You've got to have a, a husband or a wife. And then, you know, you got to get a, a house. An apartment can't really do anymore. And then, of course, a couple years later starts this whole deal where you start having one child after another, kind of like a good Catholic family, you know, all these children. And you got all this that makes up your life, and you add this to your life. And then you have another pursuit. You want to get a master's degree, perhaps another job to replace the one that you had. These are all your pursuits. That makes up your life. But then, of course... Of all your pursuits, one thing that's really important, especially for a good American, to make your life really worthwhile, is leisure. The dressing of leisure, you know, to have a good time. Vacations, fun, relaxation. And because we're good, you know, American Christians, we like not just a little bit of leisure. You know, they say you got to be careful how much dressing you put on your salad because of all the calories. But when it comes to our lives and our leisure, we want it all, right? We want as much leisure as we can possibly imagine. Our whole lives filled with leisure and all kinds of fun and good activities, right? This is our life. And then in the restaurant of life, there's one optional ingredient. Some people choose to include it. Some people choose to do without for example, I was at this very expensive restaurant not too long ago, and I was watching this because somebody next to me, they had ordered a salad. Now, I'll be honest, I don't get that. Like, if you're going to go to an expensive restaurant that really makes good food, you don't order a salad. But this person ordered a salad, and so now, you know, they, they bring this person the salad and place it down before that person like it's gold. It's just a salad. But they place it down. Oh, wow. And then, you know, the person stands there and they say, you know what? Would you like a little pepper with that? And that person says, oh, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll have a little pepper with that. You know? Oh, but not too much, they said. You know, just a little. And this optional ingredient, the pepper in our lives is Christ. Some people say, you know what, I don't need any pepper. I'm, I'm fine the way that it is. And other people say, well, you know what, I'm, yeah, I want a little pepper. Give me a little bit of Jesus. Not, not too much, but yeah, I'll have some of that. And this becomes, for many people, our Christian lives. But the reality is, 
when Jesus is merely just a spice that we add to our life, contentment is going to be somewhat elusive to us. It's like the person who wrote this, and I came across this a few months ago, and I thought, boy, it struck me. He said, I'd like to buy $3 worth of Jesus, please. Not too much. Just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much of Jesus that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I, I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies, cherish self-denial, and contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people, but I myself don't want to love those from different races, especially if they smell or don't dress well. I would like enough of Jesus to make my family secure and my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I would like about $3 worth of Jesus, please. And when Jesus becomes a $3 spice we add to our lives, we'll never know true contentment. But when Jesus becomes our life, when he becomes the focus of everything that we're about, well, it's then that we can join with the Apostle Paul who wrote, I can do everything. I can do everything. And the reality is left to itself, that phrase smacks of the self-reliance we hear in our culture today, right? You've heard this before. You've heard this statement, right? The power is what? It's within you. You know what? Whatever you set your mind to, you can achieve it. And when we embrace this mentality, we embrace it fully, it means that we place our hopes then in ourselves, in our bank account, in our willpower, in our friends or our family. And there's nothing wrong with those things, but they do all have one thing in common. They'll disappoint you. They will. Your bank account, it can shrink. You know what? Your, your, your willpower, it can diminish. I mean, one day it seems like you're doing great and I can really do this. The next day, man, not so much. And then when it comes to your family and friends, they're not always going to place you at the center of their lives. They're going to have other things to focus on. And suddenly, man, it just doesn't seem right any longer. That's why Paul, he continues in this statement. He finishes it, finishes it this way. He says, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Some versions of the Bible say, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. This is one of the most popular verses in the entire Bible. It's on t-shirts, coffee mugs, all over the place. And yet the only place and the only way we really can fully understand what Paul's really saying is when we've had some life experiences that have challenged us. We've had some life experiences where we have had to rely on Christ through thick and thin. That's how Paul got to this place of writing this statement. I mean, consider Paul's journey for a moment, what he'd been through. In fact, listen to his words as he writes to the Corinthians. And this is kind of his initiation process into contentment. He says, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and I have been naked. 
Paul's saying, oh man, been through a lot. So as he takes a look at Philippians 4.13, I think what he's saying is this, that I have been initiated into contentment through some good times, and there's some really bad times as well. And I can embrace either option only through the power of Christ, not my own strength, but only in and through him. Through Christ, I can do all things. This was his initiation process. What's yours? How are you being initiated into contentment? Because if you're anything like me, what we tend to do is we push away, we fight against this initiation process rather than embrace it so that it can help us to get more focused on what really matters. Jesus. That's why Paul tells us only a focus on Christ produces a contented life. It's a powerful statement. But Paul's not quite done yet. He continues, and he says, yet... It was good of you to share my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of our acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, this is huge here, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving. Think about all the churches that Paul planted, a lot of them, but only one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, the church in Philippi, except you only, he says. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. That's why he loved this church so much. Because they gave selflessly to him and to others. Second lesson, a focus on others produces a contented life. A focus on others produces a contented life. You see, we've got it messed up. We've got it messed up. Paul would say, you know what, it's not our standard of living that should increase. It's our standard of giving that should increase. As I said earlier, the church in Philippi, they had so little. In fact, if these people were alive today, we here at our church would probably send out a short-term mission trip in order to help these people. They lived in poverty, and yet, as a result, they gave out of their nothingness to Paul. And Paul says, as a result of that selfless living, selfless giving, there's three blessings that are arising from your life. First is an investment. An investment. Paul says in verse 17, not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. See, while Paul was thankful for the tangible gift he'd received from them, he was more excited about that God-sized gift that they were going to receive from God as a result of their generosity to him. Because you're making an investment, the blessing of an investment that goes on and on into your eternal life. Are you making that kind of investment? Because you're going to receive the blessing of an investment. Secondly, the blessing of pleasure. Not necessarily our pleasure, he's saying, but God's pleasure. He writes in verse 18, I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Think about this. Paul's saying, every time you give financially to somebody else who is in need, Every single time you give to the church, God is worshipped, he is honored, he is glorified, he is exalted, and he finds pleasure in you. So as you receive the blessing of investment, of pleasure, and then, of course, of reward. Of reward. In verse 19 and 20, he writes, And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And this, verse 19, verse 13 is one of the top two quoted verses, you know, in our country. This is probably number four or five, right? 
And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. It's a beautiful verse. We often as Christians love to hear it or quote it. But even though it says this, that my God will meet all of my needs, we often live in a different way that says basically my God will meet all of my greeds according to his glorious riches. And when he doesn't, we get kind of angry, kind of bitter. We become discontented sometimes, don't we? And we shouldn't because Paul here is not talking about a health and wealth gospel. Rather, he's pointing to a progression of how things work in the kingdom of God. In fact, Warren Wiersbe, a man I greatly respect, he's a pastor, theologian. He talks about this progression from Paul's vantage point. He's saying, Paul is saying this, you met my need and now God is going to meet your need. You met one need that I had and now God is going to meet all your needs. You gave to me out of your poverty and now God is going to give to you out of his gracious abundance. See, ultimately, he's trying to get them, he's trying to get us to understand something truly essential, friends, as we close out this letter. It's this. As we are transformed through contentment, our generosity grows towards others, and God's generosity grows towards us. Take that in again. As we are transformed through contentment, our generosity grows towards others, and God's generosity grows towards us. So let me ask Out of your contentment, where could your generosity be invested? What's your next step? Could you, for example, support a needy child overseas? Could you go on a short-term mission trip? Is your next step to join a GO group right here at MCC and minister to those within our three-mile radius? Is your next step to bring groceries to your neighbor who just lost their job? Is your next step to give more to the church, to start giving to the church? What's your next step? And even as I ask those questions, you might in the back of your mind saying, you know, Phil, I don't know that you get it. Because I'm a whole lot like the church in Philippi. I mean, I don't have much. I really don't have much to give. In fact, I have more bills than I have opportunity to bless. But that's getting to the point. Paul's trying to get us to understand as we take a look at the church in Philippi. He's saying this, that your little becomes much. You place it in the master's hand. What are you doing with your little, if that's your situation right now? See, I think many times we look around, we think, well, the happiest people in America, the most contented people in America are those people who have it all. They're doing so incredibly well. And yet the reality is, I don't know about you, but when I've traveled around, I spent time with people, the happiest people I found, the ones that are laughing and enjoying one another would be those people who many times don't seem to have much at all. In fact, we would say from our American standards, don't really have anything. And yet they're filled with love for their family, for their friends. I mean, they're filled with love for God. They have something that we want, even though they don't have anything from our perspective. Why is that? I think there's a couple of reasons, but one would be this. Studies show, listen to this here. Studies show that people earning less than $25,000 a year give away to others an average of 4.2% of their income. If you make less than $25,000, you're giving away an average of about 4.2%. And some people would say, well, that's not very much. It's only 4.2%. But then studies also show that people earning more than $75,000 a year give away only 2.7% of what they take in. The poor outgive those who are well off. Why? 
Because contentment breeds generosity. Contentment says, you know what? I'm, I'm good with what I got. How can I help others? So how content are you? Well, you would know by who you're writing your checks to. You would know by what's going on in your mind. Are you focused on what you're going to get next? Or are you focused more on how you can help that next person next? How content are you? Where is Jesus in your life? Because if Jesus is nothing but a $3 spice, the ad, well, then we're going to be focused on this. What more we can add to this? Is there anything more we can add to the pile? When Jesus becomes our life, we look to him as our model. We say, you know what? He, he placed us before himself. It's our turn to do the same. That's living with contentment. Then Paul closes by writing these words. He says, greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. That's his closing prayer, that brief prayer. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. That's his closing prayer to them and for them. As we close out this series, we're going to close out with a prayer as well. And it's going to be the same prayer. It's whispered throughout the pages of Philippians. Have you been hearing it? It's been there all along. Over and over again, Paul's been saying the same basic thing. Have you been hearing it? Because our ability to not only hear this prayer, but pray this prayer over and over and over again has everything to do with how content we're really going to be. And so what is this short little prayer? This three-word prayer that's prayed throughout the book of Philippians, that's been prayed ever since by Christians throughout time, It's brought about transformation upon transformation. What is this simple prayer? Well, this prayer that we end with today comes directly from Paul's writings. Philippians is merely this. Make it your prayer, will you? Give me Jesus.